Well, you are listening to Understanding Christianity. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Cole. I'm the lead pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. I also serve as an adjunct instructor at Colorado Christian University. Well, thank you for listening to our podcast today. I did want to just remind you of my book, 40 Days in Philippians, Finding Joy in Jesus through G3 Press. You can get that at the G3 website in paperback, and you can also get the Kindle version on Amazon. That would be a great Christmas gift as we go into the Christmas season to give to somebody to grow closer to Christ through a daily devotional through the book of Philippians. Well, today I wanted to discuss the issue related to dispensationalism with all the things that are going on in Israel back on October 7th of this year when Hamas, the terrorist group, attacked Israel and killed over 1,200 Jewish citizens. It was a horrific act of violence. It was terrible. It was outrageous. And um, now we are in this process of seeing how things are going to unfold in the Middle East between the nation of Israel and um, the West Bank, Gaza Strip, Iran, the nations around there, how it's all going to unfold according to God's will. Ultimately, it is God's will. But this has led a lot of people to start talking about the role of Israel in end times and the nation of Israel and all of these different types of things. And I usually don't deal with issues related to eschatology or end times, but I felt like it would be important to discuss five reasons why I'm not, I'm not a dispensationalist. Now, I've been studying eschatology or end times views all the way back in the late 80s when I was in high school. And I have never embraced the dispensational theology. I've never been a pre-tribulation rapture adherent. I've never held to the dispensational framework. And so um, at times I um, maybe in the past would have been more of what would be called a historic premillennial or classic premillennial. But over the years... I have settled in on an amillennial view of eschatology. And since I am a Reformed Baptist, I hold to covenant theology. And so I'm going to be talking about dispensationalism in this podcast and give you five reasons. There's probably a lot more, but just five reasons why I'm not a dispensationalist. And you may be wondering, well, what is dispensationalism? What, what is this big word or this word? Maybe I've never heard of it. Um, I'm sure you're very familiar with it. It's the primary view of end times that's been around for the past 20 or 30 years. Made very popular by the Left Behind books by Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins. That type of theology. Most of your televangelists and your prophecy speakers are mostly dispensational. So dispensationalism is really a novel theology. It was introduced by John Nelson Darby of the English Plymouth Brethren movement in the 1830s. So this was this is a fairly new view in church history. Before the 1830s, the church did not hold to any of the tenets of dispensationalism. And I'm going to explain what those are here in just a, in a few moments. The early church fathers, they were premillennial in their understanding of Revelation 20, but they did not hold to a pre-tribulational rapture They did not hold to a lot of the views that come forth in dispensationalism, and they did not view the main plank of dispensationalism of that being two separate plans for Israel 
and the church. For example, Justin Martyr and Irenaeus, two church fathers, regarded the church, the New Testament church, as the fulfillment of the new covenant in Jeremiah 31, 31. And interestingly, none of the early creeds, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian Creed, the Athanasian Creed, mention the millennium. And some early church fathers were not premillennial. There seems to be this view that all the church fathers were premillennial, but actually there were some church fathers that were not. Clement of Rome, Ignatius, Polycarp, and Athanasius were not premillennial. Now, obviously, Augustine was amillennial, and this view held through the Reformation. So, literally, the longest view in church history was the amillennial view of Augustine, as well as Calvin and Luther and the Reformers. None of the Protestant creeds or confessions are dispensational, with the distinction between Israel and the church. Nor do the Reformed Protestant creeds mention a little, literal thousand-year reign. Now, now, what would this include? Well, this would include the Second Helvetic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, the Westminster Confession, the 39 Articles, and the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession. Do not mention a literal thousand-year reign. Now, how did it become popular in America? Well, a man named James Brooks popularized dispensationalism in America post-Civil War. And one of his students was C.I. Schofield, whose famous reference Bible was published in 1909, the Schofield Reference Bible, which is probably the, the beginning of, of the popular movement of dispensationalism in America. Uh, there are some other famous proponents of dispensationalism in America, Dwight L. Moody, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, who established Dallas Theological Seminary in 1924. Um, Dallas Theological Seminary and Moody Bible Institute are probably the two main institutions in America that have promoted scholarly dispensationalism with the writings of professors like J. Dwight Pentecost and Charles Ryrie. And of course, John MacArthur is probably the most famous living dispensationalist today. So let me give five reasons why I'm not a dispensationalist. And let me begin by saying that I don't think dispensationalism is a false doctrine or that it is a heresy. But I'm going to be very nuanced and be very careful to say that I believe dispensationalism is erroneous. I think it's an error, both theologically and hermeneutically. Just like I would say Arminianism is not a heresy, but it is an error. It does not understand the full scope of the biblical teaching. So, what are these five reasons why I am not a dispensationalist? Well, here's the first. Dispensationalists deny Reformed Covenant theology. By definition of being a Reformed Baptist that holds to 1689 federalism or covenant theology, I cannot hold to dispensational theology because they are in diametric opposition to one another. So dispensationalism denies the three covenants of Reformed theology. Now, what are the three covenants? You have the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. These are the three historic covenants that Reformed theologians, Reformed people hold to. Both Presbyterian and well as Reformed Baptist 
all those that are Reformed Protestants. So what's the covenant of redemption? Well, these are just going to be a brief flyover. Covenant of redemption is the redemption, the, the covenant that was entered into by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world. This is the compact or covenant that the, the three members of the Trinity entered into together to orchestrate the plan of salvation. The Father would sovereignly elect a particular group of people. He would send the Son who willingly went to earth to become fully God and fully man in the flesh and to fulfill the law on behalf of God's standard and then to die as a substitutionary atonement for those particular people. And then the Holy Spirit would apply salvation to those particular people. So basically, it's the doctrine of sovereign election, but it's from the framework of the covenant of redemption between the three persons of the Trinity. Then there was the covenant of works in the garden that God gave Adam. If Adam would have obeyed God's command and not have eaten for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he would have earned for himself and his posterity eternal life. But since he did not, he, he did not pass the test. He failed the test. And thus he brought sin and the curse and condemnation into the world. And so every single human being is born under the covenant of works as a result of Adam's sin. But then in Genesis 3.15, God answered the covenant of works with the covenant of grace, the announcement of a seed of the offspring, the Messiah, a man, would come and crush the head of the serpent. It's the first announcement of the gospel. And so God answers the problem of Adam's fall with the covenant of grace. So there are three distinct covenants, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace that dispensationalists, for the most part, deny. Now here's the confusing thing about dispensationalism. You will find many dispensationalists to be Calvinistic in their theology. Some are Arminian, but you cannot call a dispensationalist Reformed. I make a distinction between Reformed and Calvinistic. John MacArthur is Calvinistic. He's a Calvinist, but I would not call him Reformed. You can hold to the five points of Calvinism, and for most dispensationalists, it's usually four-point Calvinism. They deny limited atonement. And usually their Calvinism is in regards to soteriology, the understanding of salvation. But Reformed theology holds to a covenantal framework, the three covenants, as the overall way to understand the entire Bible and God's plan of redemption. So reason number one that I'm not a dispensationalist is because I am a covenant theologian in the Reformed tradition. And by, by just necessity of definition, you can't be a covenant theologian and a dispensationalist at the same time. They are in conflict. All right, let's look at number two. Second reason why I'm not a dispensationalist. Dispensationalists hold to an overly literalistic interpretation of Scripture instead of the historic Protestant analogy of faith hermeneutic. Now let me say that again. Dispensationalists hold to an overly maybe even woodenly, literalistic interpretation of Scripture instead of the historic Protestant analogy of faith, hermeneutic. Okay, now what do I mean by that? Protestant Reformed covenant theology says that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. That is a fundamental difference between Reformed theology and dispensationalism. Dispensationalists are suspicious 
that if we allow the New Testament to inform the Old Testament, that would automatically lead to spiritualizing Old Testament prophecy, that would lead to wild allegorization, and ultimately it would lead to a denial of inerrancy. And so I've had conversations with my dispensationalist friends, and it kind of takes me back because they'll ask me, do you believe in the literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture? And I would say, yes, I do. And they say, well, how come you're not a dispensationalist? Because we take the Bible literally, but you don't. You do something else. And we would say, let's, let's discuss what you mean by literally. We would say, as Reformed theologians, we, yes, we interpret the Bible literally, grammatically, historically, but we believe that the hermeneutic to be used is that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. And dispensationalists are suspicious of that. So when you say that the New Testament must interpret the Old Testament, dispensationalists get a little edgy. They, they feel that you're going to begin spiritualizing or allegorizing. And so we believe that the New Testament has the final word as to the meaning of those passages. Whereas dispensationalism tends to want to interpret the Old Testament and then go to the New Testament to try to harmonize the, the New Testament teaching with the previous Old Testament passage, but they really don't allow the New Testament to control or determine the meaning of the Old. And so what this leads to is that all of the Old Testament promises, they would say, are fulfilled in literal Israel, in a literal nation state, a geopolitical nation state among the Jewish people. So all those Old Testament prophecies have to be literally fulfilled in land promises, in nation promises, and so we would say that the new covenant promise of Jeremiah 31 is fulfilled in both Jews and Gentiles, the church. But they would argue that that new covenant promise is only for Israel. They would say the church cannot fulfill the new covenant promises that were made to Israel in the old because, here's their argument, that would undermine the need for a millennium. Okay, now notice how the millennium is assumed that there has to be a literal millennium, and that assumption is worked backwards into their understanding of the new covenant. There, there, there's got to be a literal millennium where these literal prophecies are literally fulfilled in the land promises of Israel. And so if there's any type of fulfillment that goes to Jew and Gentile in the church, then it basically negates all those literal promises made to Israel, and there would be no need for a literal earthly millennium. And so we have to ask the question, does the new covenant promise in Jeremiah 31, is that fulfilled in the church? Or is that specifically for Israel? Listen to how the writer of Hebrews expounds it. And again, dispensationalists have a hard time with the book of Hebrews because Hebrews is a sermon that is geared toward Jewish Christians who are tempted to go back to Judaism. And the entire point, the entire thesis of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better or more superior than those Old Testament types and shadows. And so you have a Holy Spirit-inspired book from a New Testament writer 
who's taking Old Testament passages and interpreting them in light of the new. And so the book of Hebrews gives us a lot of information on how we should be interpreting the Old Testament because we have an example. We have the the Spirit-inspired New Testament writer, the writer of Hebrews, who's anonymous, giving to us the New Testament application or the New Testament hermeneutical understanding of those Old Testament passages. So in Hebrews chapter 8, verses 6 through 13, it says this, But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that's much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it's enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them, and he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Okay, this is the, this is the new covenant he's quoting from Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, as I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after these days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds, and I will write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. And they shall be my people, and they shall not teach. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, "Know the Lord." For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Now, here's where they take it literally. They would say that because it says that I'm going to make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, that's limited literally to the nation of Israel. They don't see within that a fuller fulfillment of that new covenant promise within the entire church, Jew and Gentile. And you can go all throughout the New Testament and even see how Jesus established the new covenant in the Lord's Supper and Paul and other places preach the new covenant theme as being fulfilled in both Jew and Gentile in those who are in Christ, not limited to just the nation of Israel. So number one, I hold to reformed covenant theology. That's why I'm not a dispensationalist. Number two, they have an overly literalistic interpretation of Scripture, which lends itself to deny the New Testament understanding or the New Testament application interpreting the Old Testament, which leads to really number three, and they're tied together. Here's number three. Dispensationalists hold that God has two distinct people and two distinct plans, and these plans will never cross or or coincide and that is God has plan A for Israel he has plan B for the church and dispensationalists will say that the church is a mystery in the Old Testament there's no mention of the church in the Old Testament it wasn't something that was even on the the writers minds in the Old Testament so it it wasn't even a reality the church really wasn't born or birthed or come into existence until Pentecost well, there's a lot to say about that. 1 Peter 2, 9-10 through 10 says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Very interesting. Peter is writing to a Gentile audience. Gentiles, actually a mixture of Jew and Gentile. But he is using two Old Testament passages to identify 
the New Testament, the New Covenant people of God. He quotes from Hosea 2.23 and from Exodus 19.5 and 6. And so Peter, again, takes Old Testament passages and that would have originally just applied to Israel, the nation of Israel, and he uses those to give a fuller understanding as to the identity of God's church, both Jew and Gentile. And so the dispensationalists will say that the church began at Pentecost, and they would also argue that the Holy Spirit did not have any part in indwelling Old Testament believers and regenerating Old Testament believers. Listen to Charles Ryrie, who's one of the most famous uh, dispensationalists of, of Dallas Seminary. He says, quote, The church did not begin until the day of Pentecost and will be removed from the world at the rapture which precedes the second coming of Christ. So there's a very limited time in the dispensationalist view on which the church is in existence. It came into existence at Pentecost, and then once the church is raptured at the pre-tribulation rapture, there will no longer be a church. Whereas in Reformed theology, we believe that God has one unified people that have always been his people. Now, the expression of that is different in the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, but God has had one group of people through the covenant of grace and the covenant of redemption. If God chose a particular people and gave those particular people to Jesus before the foundation of the world, and Jesus came and died for those people, then there is one people that belong to God the one people of God, the elect, both Jew and Gentile. But see, here's what the dispensationalists will say. They, they would say that Jesus, when he came in his first coming, he offered the kingdom, the earthly kingdom, to the Jewish people. But they rejected it. They rejected their Messiah. They rejected the offer of the kingdom. And so because they rejected this offer, God went to plan B. God temporarily suspended the Jewish people, and now we're in a parenthesis, they would call it. The parenthesis is the Gentile church. And now God is dealing with the Gentiles. And then at the pre-tribulation rapture, he's going to get rid of the Gentile church, that parenthesis in church history. And then he will go back to plan A, which is what the original plan was, was with the Jewish people. So, so there's two distinct plans, two distinct um, outcomes. And again, this necessitates a pre-tribulation rapture, because you got to get the church out of the way to go back to plan A, the Jewish people. Now let's think about Israel in the Old Testament. Let's just think about this. Within Israel in the Old Testament, you had three groups within Israel, the, the nation, or how it was defined. Okay, you had the Gentile nations. They were all around them, all the different ites, the Canaanites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, all the different ites, the Gentile nations. Then you had the geopolitical Israel as a theocracy, the, the, the theocratic nation with all of their kings and their priests and their prophets and the temple sacrifice and everything that was related to them as being a theocracy. But ultimately in the Old Testament, you had true Israel. And true Israel was made up of genuine believers who believed in the Messiah that promised from Jesus. Genesis 3.15, who were part of the covenant of grace. So even within the Old Testament, even though there was a theocratic nation state, you still had true Israel, the believers, within that. Now, think about during the earthly ministry of Jesus. You have the same thing. You had the Gentile nations, the Roman Empire. 
during Jesus' time. And then you had Israel as a nation. Now, they weren't in political power the way they were back under David and Solomon, but there were, in a sense, some national structure with the Jewish leaders. You had the Pharisees, you had the Sadducees, you, you had the Sanhedrin, you had those who were Jews outwardly. And then, even during Jesus' day, you had true Israel made up of genuine believers. You had the 11 disciples that were Jewish men that were true believers. You had men like Nicodemus and other Jewish people that were not necessarily part of the they were part of the, the heritage, the nation, but they were actually true believers. So what happened on the day of Pentecost? Was the church only started then? No, what happened was it was really the constitution of the true Israel. Now, it was a nucleus of Jewish believers, but then it spread to include Gentiles, but it was not the birth of the church it was the expression that because Christ had risen from the dead, he's the exalted Christ. He went back to heaven. He's seated at the right hand. He could send his Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to come and indwell both Jews and Gentiles. But it's not the birth of the church. It's just a different expression of what God has been doing all along. Now, let's think about Romans 11, 11 through, 11 through 24. So Romans 11 gives a great teaching about God's plan for Israel. So this is Paul. So I asked, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their, he's talking about the Jewish people, rather through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. And as much then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But, and this is the important part, if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, either will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, too, you will too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Now, that's a lot of discussion about this, this olive tree and grafted in. Let me just basically give you the, the teaching here very briefly. The cultivated olive tree is natural Israel. Israel, Jew, Jewish people by, by birth, by ethnicity, natural Israel. And, and secondly, the natural branches that are broken off are unbelieving Israelites. Israelites who rejected their Messiah. They've been broken off. They are no longer part of the cultivated olive tree. They've been cut off. The good branches that remain on that cultivated olive, those are the believing Israelites. They're still part of the olive tree, 
but they're good in the sense that they are believers in the Messiah. And the wild branches that were grafted in, those are Gentiles, believing Gentiles, not the original olive tree that was the Jewish people, but they've been grafted back in. So here's the point. There's only one olive tree. God does not plant a new olive tree. There's one olive tree made up of both Jews who are believers and Gentiles who are believers that have been grafted in. And Paul holds out hope and says those unbelieving Jews who were cut off, there may be a day where they come to faith in the Messiah and they will be added back into the branch and there will be one olive tree. So very, very key understanding that, that, that why I'm not a dispensationalist is because Paul's argument is there is one olive tree, not two distinct trees, not two distinct plans. There's one Messiah. There's one olive tree. There's one covenant of redemption. There's one covenant of works. There's one covenant of grace. God has one people all throughout his plan of salvation. And Paul even talks about this in Galatians. He says in Galatians 3.16, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say into offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. And then in verse 29, And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. See, th those promises in the Old Testament were made to Abraham. Yes. And to his seed. And, and Paul's very clearly saying the seed there is Christ. So all of these Old Testament promises that were made to Abraham find their fulfillment, find their fruition in Christ. They belong to Christ. And so if you are in Christ by faith, then you are united to Jesus by faith, whether Jew or Gentile. And all those promises that were made to Abraham come to Christ and then come to you. So there's not literal land promises. Paul does not mention a millennium. He talks about the spiritual blessings, those promises in the Old Testament that were given to Abraham. They find their ultimate fulfillment in Christ, the true Israel, and thus, when we are connected to faith in Christ, we too are the true Israel, both Jew and Gentile, the one olive branch. That's why when Paul is writing to the Galatians, a predominantly Gentile audience, he can say in Galatians 6, 15 through 16, for there neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He calls Gentiles the Israel of God. Now, a big question. What do we do with the restoration of the geopolitical nation of Israel in 1948? I have a lot of people say, look, that's proof that, that God has a specific plan for Israel. There's those land promises are coming back. They're, they're back in the land. They're, they're a geopolitical nation. And I would say this. This did happen under God's sovereignty and his providence. And it is part of his ordained plan. We are good reformed theologians. Everything comes to pass by God's ordained decree. So this is not an accident. God obviously ordained for it to come about. But what does it mean? Does it mean much? There's really no need for real estate in Israel. There's no need for land promises or there's no need for a rebuilt temple because all of those promises have been fulfilled in Christ. Christ is the true Israel.
Christ is the end times temple. And by faith, when we are connected to Christ, we become part of his family and are thus, by extension, part of the true Israel of God. And we are the living temple. So there there really is no need to have a literal millennium, to have a rebuilt temple, to have all these land promises come to fruition in the geopolitical nation state of Israel. Now, that does not mean that there will not be a massive conversion of Jews during the end times. I, I believe this. I believe Revelate, I mean, Romans chapter 11 does say there's a remnant by grace chosen. There are those among God's elect in the covenant of grace who are ethnically Jewish people. And I do believe that there will be a massive conversion of Jewish people in the end times. But this is an evangelistic, this is an evangelistic conversion, not necessarily during a period of tribulation, not after the pre-tribulation rapture, but there are going to be a large conversion of Jewish people. And Reformed theologians have, hold to the, have held to this. Jonathan Edwards believed this. Andrew Bonar believed this. Robert Murray McShane believed this. Even Charles Spurgeon believed this. Okay, what about number four? Dispensationalists deny the three uses of the law for today, and they lean towards what I would call antinomianism or no lordship salvation. And so let's talk about this. What are the three uses of the law? What's no lordship salvation? What's antinomianism? Why does dispensationalism lead to that? Uh, Schofield was very famous for saying that Israel rashly accepted the Sinai covenant and thus gave themselves over to the law. And oftentimes you will hear dispensationalists, some of them would say, the Sermon on the Mount does not apply to us today. That was preached only towards the Jewish people of Jesus' day. That's the offering of the kingdom. That has nothing to do with the Gentile church. It may be applicable in the millennium. And they'll say things like, we're not under law, but we are under grace. They would say, you can take Jesus as Savior, but you don't have to take him as Lord. They don't include repentance and the call to salvation. And so it really comes down to their understanding of the law. So in Protestant theology, we have three types of law and three uses of the law. And most of your dispensationalists, with the exception of John MacArthur, he's, he's, he doesn't hold to this, so I, I appreciate John MacArthur for this, but the old Dallas Theological Seminary dispensationalists really denied the role of the moral law, God's law, being applicable in, in the world today. So historically, evangelical Reformed Protestants have distinguished between three types or kinds of law. Um, civil law. This was Old Testament civil law. This was the judicial laws in respect to the civil government. Courts, elders, judges, contracts, punishments for crimes. The different things that govern the nation of Israel in, in a theocracy so they could have a civil society. Then there was also the ceremonial law, secondly. These were the external ordinances to be observed in the public worship of God the washings, the food laws, the priestly garments, um, all of the requirements and rituals that were done to be part of the ceremonies of ancient Israel. And then there was the moral law, number three. This was focusing on the Ten Commandments. And so what we believe in Reformed historical Protestant theology is that the civil law has gone away, the ceremonial law has gone away. Those have been fulfilled in Christ, but the moral law still is binding. 
The Ten Commandments or the moral law are binding for all time in all places on all people because it's God's standard moral law. And Paul would say in Romans 7 verse 12, So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. And so historically Christians have understood three uses of God's law. When we talk about God's law, we're not talking about the ceremonial or the civil. We're talking about the moral law as codified in the Ten Commandments. So there's three uses of the law. And again, most dispensationalists will, will deny the three uses of the law. All right, let's talk about the three uses of the law. The first use, or use number one, is to expose our sin and to crush us in despair for breaking God's law. This is geared towards non-Christians, for non-Christians to see their utter inability to keep God's standard. It's to drive them to their knees in despair, to cry out to God for salvation. Romans 3.20 says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So we believe that the moral law, the Ten Commandments, the first use of the law is needed, especially in evangelism, to lay bare the sinner so that they can be confronted with their sin. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the heart is like a dark cellar full of lizards, cockroaches, beetles, and all kinds of reptiles and insects, which in the dark we don't see, but the law takes down the shutters and lets the light in so we see the evil. So the law basically tears away our self-effort, our self-sufficiency, our self-love. And so the first use of the law shatters us, it levels us, it shows us our guilt, and leads us to cry out for mercy from Jesus. And so it's important that we use the moral law, the Ten Commandments, in our preaching, in our evangelism, the first use of that law to confront non-Christians with their guilt. Use two, I won't spend a lot of time on that. That's just a, it's a moral standard to govern civil society. Um, all people, even unsaved people, are to live under the moral law. It's to govern nations because we're all created in the image of God. <clears throat> There's a general idea of justice and right and wrong, and God has established his moral law to be used by governments to curb anarchy, to maintain justice and peace <clears throat> in society. And then use number three, the law is given to, believe, to believers as a guide for holy living. This is where the dispensationalists often have a major problem because we in the Reformed Covenant theology camp believe that the moral law is still applicable to the Christian, not as a means of justification, not as, as a way to earn our salvation, but as a guide to live the Christian life after we've been saved. The, the Ten Commandments are still morally binding on us as God's moral will. Now, we have the Holy Spirit living in us to empower us. The law has now been written in our hearts through regeneration, and so the indwelling power of the Spirit gives us the strength and the grace to be able to obey, but we just don't throw out the law of God in the Christian life. And so there's a stream within dispensational theology that says really there's no room for the law. Basically, we're, we're under grace, not under law, and so they, they, have, they frown upon any uses of the law. The first use and especially the third use of the law. So that's, that's reason number four, is that some streams of dispensationalism 
lead towards antinomianism, and anti means against, nomos, law. Antinomianism is just a, a big word for license or a, a flippancy towards God's law. Kind of the idea is, you know, I know I'm saved. I can live however I want. It doesn't really matter because actually, as, as a matter of fact, I'm under law. I mean, I'm under grace, not law. Once saved, always saved. I said the prayer. And so basically I can live however I want. And it doesn't really matter if I morally live up to God's standard through the power of the Holy Spirit. So, so there's even some within dispensationalism like Zane Hodges and others that believe you can actually stop believing in Jesus and still be a Christian because once saved, always saved. You said the prayer. You really don't have to have any fruit of, of repentance ongoing in your life. Okay, let's talk about number five. Number five is not so much a theological reason, but more of a practical reason. And, and here's the, the last reason why I'm not a dispensationalist. Many dispensationalists, I believe, are overly dogmatic. And they argue that their view is the only valid way to interpret the Bible and in times. And they allow no room for disagreement on these secondary issues. You often talk to dispensationalists and they will basically not cede any ground to any other view. Now, remember, at the beginning of this podcast, I did say that I believe dispensationalism is an error. It's not a heresy. It's not a false doctrine. I believe it's an error. But I also allow for people to believe that if they hold to that, if they have their reasons for that. It's a secondary issue. It's not a dogma. It's not, it's not the Trinity or Jesus' deity or salvation by grace alone through faith alone or the virgin birth or the substitutionary atonement or the resurrection or the reality of heaven and hell or the authority and inspiration and inerrancy of scriptures. It's not a dogma, a hill on which we need to die. This is a secondary issue. And let me just give you an example. Without mentioning names, there is, um, there's a church in town that's very close to our church in theology, except for they are overly dispensational in their theology. And in recent years, they had somewhat of a church split because there was a group of younger uh, leaders that were embracing reform theology and coming to more of a covenantal understanding and they expressed that to the elders and said you know are we going to be allowed to continue to have covenantal reform theology or do we have to embrace dispensationalism and basically what happened was there was no room at all for secondary views and so the elders of that church said we are strictly dispensational this is where we're going you can't teach you can't lead you can't be in any positions unless you toe the line on every aspect of dispensational theology. That's a hill we're going to die on. So those men went and started another church in town. It's been going for about a year and a half now, um, and it is a Reformed church. And again, it's very similar to our theology, but the, the original church was so dogmatic on dispensationalism, they, they allowed no room for secondary issues. And I could say this, even... Um, among us as elders, not so much now, but before, when we had, when I first came to Emmanuel, we had a, a little bit different group of elders than who we have now. I've been here 18 years. And obviously all of us agree upon the doctrines of grace, upon reform, theology, Calvinism. But there are, were differing views on eschatology, even among the elders. There, there were a few dispensationalists. Now, as we've as I've been there longer, over 18 years, as we've studied the book of Revelation, as we've, we've um, embraced the 1689, um, some of those elders are, are no longer elders because they, they've either moved away or they uh, have stepped down. But the current group of elders, 
I would say are all in the covenant theology aspect or of that. But we don't make it an issue at our church. And so it's very interesting. Um, when I do our new members class at Emmanuel, we call it Discovering Emmanuel. It's a six-week class. And we talk about the second coming. And, and we don't make a huge deal on the mechanics or the, or the, the specifics of end times, whether you're pre-trib, post-trib, amillennial. Uh, we, we have a covenant understanding of that in our official doctrinal statement with the 1689, but we're not dogmatic on that. And what I found is that dispensationalists are highly dogmatic. They often say that we hold to what's called replacement theology, that we want to replace Israel with the church. And, and, and we say, no, we're not, we don't, we don't believe in replacement theology. We don't believe the church replaces Israel. We believe that the church is Israel fully consummated, full, fully formed of both Jew and Gentile, that one olive branch, that one olive tree with both grafted in. So hopefully this has been a helpful podcast on why I am not a dispensationalist. And I gave you those reasons. And let's just go over those again, just so we can remind ourselves of why I'm not a dispensationalist. Number one, just by definition, I can't be a dispensationalist if I hold to the 1689, because that is a covenant um, it's a covenant theology document. It's, it's, I'm, a, I'm, a reformed, I, I'm a reformed Baptist that holds to covenant theology. Number two, um, the dispensationalists hold to an overly, I would say, wooden, literalistic interpretation of Scripture. They don't allow the New Testament to interpret the Old Testament, which is the historic Protestant analogy of faith hermeneutic. And then number three, dispensationalists hold that God has two distinct plans. He's had a distinct plan for Israel, plan A, Plan B, the church, it's a parenthesis. Once the church gets out of the way through a pre-tribulational, pre-tribulational rapture, God can go back to plan A and deal with the Jewish nation of Israel again. And then number four, dispensationalism, at least in some streams, tend to lead towards antinomianism, a denial of the three uses of the law, uh, and, and, uh, looking askance at the whole idea of the role of God's law today in the life of a Christian. And then number five, um, they tend to be overly dogmatic that their way is the only way and they allow no room for um, any other secondary views and they almost elevate dispensationalism to a dogma as opposed to a secondary issue. And you talk to a dispensationalist and, and I've had conversations with them and, and they, they, get, they get really nervous because their argument is, is that if you don't hold to dispensationalism, you're on a slippery slope to becoming one who denies inerrancy. And so they see it as an issue of inerrancy and how you interpret the scripture. And that's why they, and I don't blame them, that's why they hold so tightly to, the, to their system. Is because to them, if you deny it, you're basically denying the inerrancy of scripture. You're denying the literal interpretation. And again, you can, we need to go back and understand, as I unpacked earlier, what do we mean by literal interpretation? Do we mean literal or literalistically um, interpreting it? So as we think about all the things related to the nation of Israel right now, what's going on, we do need to pray for the things going on in the Middle East. We do need to pray for the safety of people that are in Israel. We need to pray that hostages get released. We need to pray for wisdom for the Israeli government and leaders. We need to pray for our leaders in America and how we interact with that. Um, we do need to be praying for that because Israel is a strategic ally, just politically, to America. Regardless of how you view it as far as your eschatology, politically, 
the nation of Israel is an ally to the United States in the Middle East. It's a democratic nation. It's one of our greatest allies, and we need to support them because of that and what they stand for as a, as, as a, as a nation of democracy, of peace, of strength in the Middle East. Well, as we gear up for Christmas, I hope you have a great time of year celebrating the Lord's birth. Until next time, let's all keep our eyes fixed on Jesus.